Hi, this is Feed Play Love, the parenting podcast that you can fit in your pocket. Short, informative and interesting interviews about everything from toilet training to how emotion coaching works. I'm your host, Siobhan Hunt. The next interview is one of the diamonds from our archive. Enjoy. Every one in 100 Australians is estimated to have autism. With such a high number of people affected, there are more stories and information around about autism than ever before. But I'm still confused. With all the articles around, I just want to know the basics. What does it really mean to have a child on the spectrum? How can you tell if your child has it? How do you get the right diagnosis? And once you do, how do you get the right treatment? We'll speak to both experts and parents who have lived experience of having children with autism. Last week, we covered one parent's journey to diagnosis. Today, in part two, we look at what autism spectrum disorder actually is. Vicki Gibbs is a clinical psychologist with Aspect, Australia's leading service provider for people with autism. Hi, Vicki. How are you? Hello. How are you? Good, thank you. What does the word autism actually mean? Well, when we're talking about autism, we're talking about autism spectrum disorder and autism spectrum disorder is a brain-based condition. So children are born with this disorder and they're affected in two main ways. So there are problems in terms of their social interaction, their social skills, the way they communicate socially. So that's one of the key areas. And the other area is they also present with what we call restricted or repetitive behaviours. And that can look like all sorts of different things, but some of the examples are a tendency to get fixated on certain things, a tendency to be very rigid in their behaviour, to be very routinised and to have some unusual sensory behaviours. Can you give us some examples of what it means to be at either end of the spectrum? Yeah, so when we refer to a spectrum, what we're saying is that people who are affected by autism can be affected across a severity of impairment. So at one end of the spectrum, you may have people who um, have what we would consider to be severe autism. So these would be people who are um, very self-absorbed and self-focused, so they're not really interacting or showing much interest in interacting with other people. They're doing a lot of solitary either play as a child or spending a lot of time on their own as an adult and appearing to prefer a kind of solitary way of being. And then at the other end, you've got people who we consider to be more mild, so people who are actively seeking out interaction with other people who perhaps have fluent language, who have average IQ or reasoning ability, but where they're having difficulty is despite the fact that they're trying to interact with other people, they lack the social skills to be able to do that effectively. So they kind of just don't know those unwritten social rules that other people really learn without teaching. You know, they just come to us naturally. And so they have all sorts of trouble with friendships and relationships and just getting along in the world for those reasons. Is it common for children who are on the spectrum to appear to be Uh, difficult or aggressive or loud, the sort of child that other parents might look at and say, oh, they're just being a spoiled brat. Oh, look, I mean, if you just pass a child with autism who's having a bad moment, that maybe may look behavioural. You know, it may be that you would perceive them to be having a tantrum. But I guess 
if you knew the child and knew the situation, what you would probably find out is that there is something that is triggering that, that's making that situation quite unbearable for that child. So it's typically more of a panic reaction or reaction to being out of control than something where they're kind of, oh, I didn't get my way. That's not really what it's about. But I mean, from a person just walking past, it would be hard to discern the difference. So they, they may appear as if they have some kind of behavioural problems, but um, in actual fact, it's not coming from that um, source at all. It's coming from real difficulties. So how do parents distinguish between what is usual toddler behaviour that could be quite challenging and what might be autism? What can they look for in their own children? Well, we get them perhaps not to focus so much on challenging behaviour. The sorts of things that indicate possible autism relate more to the child's social skills. So when the child is not having a tantrum, so on a typical day, um, the sorts of behaviours of concern that might indicate autism would be perhaps things like children preferring to play alone, not showing interest in interacting with other people, um, especially other children, perhaps parents finding it very hard to get the child to attend to them, the child not doing things to get their parents' attention, like most children would want to show things to their parents and point things out to their parents. I mean, if a child wasn't doing that at all, that would be concerning. And even the way they play, so we expect children, I guess, to play functionally with toys and to be interested in a variety of things and if you had a child who was playing with toys in a very unusual or repetitive way or didn't seem to be interested in toys or the environment the way children are then those sorts of things would be more concerning. Vicky if you notice the signs that you were just speaking about in your child what do you do where do you take them? Well most people would first of all go and talk to their local family doctor and perhaps ask for a referral to a paediatrician. There are some paediatricians that specialise in child's development so that's a developmental paediatrician that would be probably ideal but a referral to a paediatrician is usually the first port of call and then it's about sharing your concerns with the paediatrician who will at that point I guess make a decision for themselves. Sometimes a paediatrician will have enough information to make a diagnosis themselves. Sometimes a paediatrician will be very confident that autism is not what's going on at all based on the information that they've got and may kind of make other recommendations. And sometimes a paediatrician may suspect autism but um, feel that they need a more comprehensive assessment so they will refer on to a specialty kind of assessment service. And so when we talk about referrals when you're getting your child assessed, is um, how do they work in a way, is you need referrals to see different, um, say, a speech pathologist or... Oh, well, there's, there's choices around that. So if you want to see a paediatrician as a first kind of discussion, then obviously you need a referral from your GP to go to a paediatrician. If perhaps some families are maybe further down the track where they've seen one or two paediatricians and things have been a little unclear, parents can go and see private providers of specialist autism assessments like the assessments that we provide at Aspect. So we don't require paediatrician referral. Parents can make their own referral. So they can certainly go through a private system um, and make their own referral to an autism assessment service. So there are different options depending on which way they want to go. When I look at um, how you might get your child diagnosed, it does seem really confusing. And for me, my first preference would be to go to someone like Aspect because I feel looking at the organisation, they have the experience they can refer me on to treatment should my child get diagnosed. 
But if it's a private organisation, does that mean that it's quite expensive? Well, that's right. I mean, that would be, I guess, the disadvantage of going to a private service is that, well, we're a not-for-profit service, so we do charge a fee and we charge a fee that basically covers our cost. But you could understand that doing autism assessments, we need qualified people with a high level of expertise. So there is a cost involved through a private service, even a not-for-profit one like ours. So there is a cost if you're accessing private services. And that's why some families have to go on quite lengthy wait lists because I guess the downside of the funded assessment services, of which there are a number that typically work from community health or from hospital bases, but they typically have quite long wait lists. And even with Aspect, I understand there would be a, a waiting time. Do you have a lot of demand on your services? Oh, look, our waiting time varies, but it's nowhere near. So ours can be as low as two weeks and sometimes up to six weeks. But again, being a private service or a fee-based service, our, our wait lists are not like um, a, pub- a public funded service would be. So once you have your child assessed, do you have a, a typical time frame um, that it takes to actually get the results of that assessment back? Again, that's going to maybe vary in terms of who you go through. So it'd be good if there was a standard answer to these things. But I can tell you from our um, the way we deliver our services, we do our assessment on one day. So we um, do the entire assessment over an entire day and that includes giving verbal feedback on the day. So the parents get the verbal result of the assessment on the day and then they get a written report within a couple of weeks. So that's our process. Some of the other assessment services, working through hospitals and assessment centres would also offer a one-day assessment where you get the results. If you're going through a private psychologist who's perhaps in a local clinic, they sometimes run their assessments over several sessions over several weeks. So that may take a little bit longer to get the final outcome. And how is that diagnosis made? What actually happens in an assessment? Are are those sort of things standard across the board? No, it's not standard. So again, at our service, we use what are considered to be the gold standard assessment tools. So these are assessment tools that are approved for use in research and have very good uh, reliability and validity associated with them. So we use them for every assessment. But not everyone would use them. They need quite a degree of training that's quite expensive. So some smaller private practices where they're perhaps not seeing autism on the regularity that we see them may opt to use other assessment tools. That's not to say always that that's a lesser assessment, but there is certainly some variety in terms of what assessment tools are used. But what has to be covered in a good assessment is a very good thorough assessment of the child directly, so one-on-one looking for those core autism symptoms. It also has to include a very comprehensive parent and developmental interview, again asking about the specific autism symptoms and we would typically seek out information from a preschool or a daycare or a school so that we're getting as much information we can from as many different sources to come to a, a kind of coherent result in terms of understanding that child's presentation as thoroughly as possible. Vicky, thank you so much for speaking with us on Kindling Conversation. That's a pleasure. Thank you. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. I'd love to hear from you, so if you'd like to get in touch, email me at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.